Chapter 10. Conley Enters Case While the grand jury was considering the indictment of Frank, a new figure entered the case. The man in question was James Conley, a Negro sweeper at the National Pencil Factory who, from that time through the tedious trial which was to follow, was the dominant figure about which the state built its case, and the man to whom the crime itself was to be charged by the defense of Frank. Conley had been arrested while the coroner's inquest was in progress. E.F. Holloway, timekeeper at the factory, one afternoon about one o'clock saw Conley washing a shirt. He said nothing to the Negro, but quietly called for the detectives. When the police arrived some ten minutes later, Conley had dried the shirt, partially, and had the garment, still damp, on his back. "'Come with me,' said the policeman. "'Boss, I haven't done a thing,' said the Negro." Why, you brute, answered the officer. You were seen washing Mary Fagan's blood off of the shirt you now have on. Boss, that wasn't blood. It was just natural nigger dirt, said Conley. Well, why were you washing it at this time of the day? questioned the blue coat. Well, Days Dunn called me for a witness at the court, and I didn't want to go around all those white people in a dirty shirt, Jim said and the officer believed him because every employee of the factory had been ordered that day to report before the coroner. But Jim was a Negro, and the police couldn't afford to take chances, so they locked him up and forgot about him for several weeks. Detective Harry Scott dropped in Jim's cell one day and asked the Negro to write a few sentences for him. The detectives were working then, as they were throughout the case, on the handwriting clue. Boss, I can't write a word innocently responded the Negro, as he walked closer to the bars and begged the officer for a cigarette. Replying to Scott's questions, the Negro gave a glib account of his movements on the Saturday of the tragedy, accounting for every minute and swearing that he had never been near the factory on that day. Nothing was thought of Jim Conley for a week or more, and then factory employees, on the occasion of the many visits of the detectives to the scene of the tragedy, informed that that Conley bore a bad reputation that he had been in the hands of the police repeatedly, and that once he had been in the city stockade and worked on the streets in front of the factory. The detectives paid little attention to the statements of the factory people about the Negro at first, as they were so certain that he had had nothing at all to do with the crime, and in addition they found that Conley was not well-liked because he had borrowed money from many employees and had failed to pay it back. Things dragged along until a few days before the case against Frank was to be presented to the grand jury, and all of the sleuths were at a loss for new clues. One day, Scott casually asked a young clerk at the factory if Conley could write. The answer was yes, and searching through a desk, he found a contract to pay the installments on a watch, which Jim had signed. Realizing that Conley had lied about one particular, the detective thought it highly probable that his story was a lie from start to finish. They started giving him the third degree that third degree which was to later cause so much comment at the trial. On May 23rd, Conley admitted, under the third degree, that he had lied about not knowing how to write, but swore that he knew nothing about the crime. He gave the officers a specimen of his handwriting, and they were startled by its similarity to that found on the notes by the slain girl's body. Saturday morning, about 10 o'clock, however, Conley sent for Detective John Black. Boss... I's going to tell you the whole truth now, he said. I did write them notes that you accuse me of writing, but I did it because Mr. Frank told me to, 
and he said he was going to send them to his mother in Brooklyn, and that she would give me a job. Go ahead, said the elated detective, and tell me all about it, Jim. Don't keep back a thing. Well, Friday evening, about three o'clock, Mr. Frank comes to me and says, Hold on, Jim, you mean Saturday, interrupted the officer. No, sir, Friday, said Jim. Go ahead, returned Black, anxious to get as much of the story as possible at that time, and knowing that he could work on the obvious lies later. But the Negro had practically told his story for the day. He added many details, declaring that Frank gave him $2.50, which was in a cigarette box, when he had written the notes and offered to get him a job with wealthy relatives in Brooklyn. Black called Harry Scott in, and after they had written out the Negro statement and had it signed, they rushed to the solicitor's office. The grand jury was then in session considering the indictment of Frank. Scott and Black wanted to clinch the indictment by putting Jim Conley before the grand jury and allowing that body to hear his story. Dorsey, however, confident that there was enough evidence without the Negro to secure Frank's indictment, and wishing to keep the Negro's story a secret, refused to put him on the witness stand. His effort to keep the sensation a secret was futile, however, and before the grand jury adjourned, an extra journal announced the startling news. Still, Dorsey held that he could get an indictment of Frank without the Negro's story, and within a few hours it was known that he was right. That afternoon, Dorsey had a long conference with the Negro and the detectives, and a stenographic report of the conversation was made. Conley stuck to his story, although the detectives pointed out that his story wouldn't fit, and told him that it showed premeditation on the part of Frank, and that there could be no premeditation where such a crime is involved. Conley swore repeatedly that he was telling the whole truth, and the detective then thought that he would never change his story. Here's the way Conley told his story in the first affidavit. State of Georgia, County of Fulton. Personally appeared before the undersigned, a notary public in and for the above state and county, James Conley, who, being sworn on oath, says, On Friday evening before the holiday, about four minutes to one o'clock, Mr. Frank come up the aisle and asked me to come to his office. That was the aisle on the fourth floor where I was working. And when I went down to the office, he asked me, could I write? And I told him, yes, I could write a little bit. And he gave me a scratch pad and told me what to put on it and told me to put on there. Dear mother, a long, tall black Negro did this by himself. And he told me to write it two or three times on there. I wrote it on a white scratch pad, a brown looking scratch pad, and looked at my writing and wrote on that himself. But when I went to his office, he asked me if I wanted a cigarette and I told him yes but they didn't allow any smoking in the factory. And he pulled out a box of cigarettes that cost 15 cents a box. And in that box, he had $2.50, two paper dollars and two quarters. And I'd taken one of the cigarettes and handed him the box back. And he told me that was all right. I was welcome to that for I was a good working Negro around there. And then he asked me where was Gordon Bailey? Snowball, they call him. And I told him he was on the elevator. And he asked me if I knew the night watchman. And I told him, no, sir, I didn't know him. And he asked me if I ever saw him in the basement, and I told him, no, sir, I never did see him down there. But he could ask the fireman, and maybe he could tell him more about that than I could. And then Mr. Frank was laughing and jollying and going on in the office. And I asked him not to take out any money for that watchman I owed, for I didn't have any to spare. And he told me he wouldn't. But he would see to me getting some money a little bit later. 
He told me he had some wealthy people in Brooklyn, and then he held his head up and looked out of the corner of his eyes and said, Why should I hang? And that's all I remember him saying to me. When I asked him not to take out money for the watch, he said, You ought not to buy any watch, for that wife of mine wants me to buy her an automobile, but he wouldn't do it. I never did see his wife. On Tuesday morning after the holiday, on Saturday, before Mr. Frank got in jail, he come up the aisle where I was sweeping and held his head over to me and whispered to me to be a good boy. And that was all he said to me. Signed, James Conley. Sworn to and subscribed before me this 24th day of May, 1913. G.C. February. Notary Public, Fulton County, Georgia. The detectives were highly elated, however, as they knew that they had in custody the writer of the murder notes. Lie out of the whole cloth as they thought his story might be, they were absolutely certain that his hand penned the notes. Handwriting experts had testified that, in their opinion, the writing on the notes was that of Newt Lee's. But it didn't take an expert to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jim Conley wrote, once they had a sample of his hand, and a sample of the murder notes before them. Detectives and students of the crime generally had repeatedly declared that the hand that wrote the notes tied the cord around Mary Fagan's neck. But the sleuths were still unsatisfied when they found that for weeks they had had the writer of the notes in custody. The mystery was clearing, but it was not solved. Conley was clearly the missing link in the chain, they said. No one believed that he was telling the whole truth. The story that Frank had the notes written on Friday planning the crime simply couldn't be swallowed. The suspicion that Conley himself might be the murderer became stronger every hour, and there was some talk about the saloons of a lynching bee. The detectives went after Conley again. The Negro was up against the third degree in earnest. Chapter 11 Conley in School The third degree, or the school, was fruitful in Conley's case. The defense of Frank has declared that after the first day, it was not a third degree that Conley went through, but a school, and the detectives, they say, were the instructors, putting the words in Conley's mouth. At any rate, May 27th, Conley made another affidavit. In this statement, which was made to Scott and Chief Lanford, Conley admitted that he wrote the notes, but declared that he went to the factory Saturday afternoon and found Mr. Frank there, and the latter called him. Conley again accounted for his whereabouts in the morning, going into many details, and repeating those relative to the writing of the note, which were given in the first affidavit. Conley also added the statement that while he was writing the notes, Frank walked nervously about the room, and looking up at the ceiling, exclaimed, Why should I hang? I have wealthy relatives in Brooklyn. The Negro asserted that he did not know then that Frank came to Atlanta from the New York City. The detectives were satisfied with Conley's second statement, until they had had plenty of time to sit down and think it over. The Negro had looked them squarely in the eye and asserted that he had told everything, which he knew even though he realized that it might involve him criminally. But back at him they went again at noon of the following day. For many hours, he was closeted in the office of Chief of Detectives Newport Lanford, while a dozen newspaper men, who had gathered outside, clamored for news about the grilling. Chief of Police Beavers was called into the conference several times, but the officials all refused to talk. By words that leaked through the doors, the reporter pieced together the Negro's new story. 
he had added that he helped dispose of the body. The following day, so many of the new sensations told by Conley had been gleaned by energetic reporters that Chief Lanford decided to make the Negro's third affidavit public. It follows in full. On Saturday, April 26, 1913, when I came back to the pencil factory with Mr. Frank, I waited for him downstairs like he told me. And when he whistled for me, I went upstairs and he asked me if I wanted to make some money right quick. And I told him, yes, sir. And he told me that he had picked up a girl back there and had let her fall and that her head hit against something. He didn't know what it was. And for me to move her and I hollered and told him the girl was dead. And he told me to pick her up and bring her to the elevator. And I told him I didn't have nothing to pick her up with. And he told me to go and look by the cotton box there and get a piece of cloth, and I got a big, wide piece of cloth, and come back there to the men's toilet, where she was, and tied her, and I'd taken her and brought her up there to a little dressing room, carrying her on my right shoulder, and she got too heavy for me, and she slipped off my shoulder, and fell on the floor right there at the dressing room, and I hollered for Mr. Frank to come there and help me, but she was too heavy for me, and Mr. Frank come down there and told me to pick her up, damn fool, and he run down there to me, and he was excited, and he picked her up by the feet. Her feet and head were sticking out of the cloth, and by him being so nervous, he let her feet fall. And then we brought her up to the elevator, Mr. Frank carrying her by the feet, and me by the shoulder. And we brought her to the elevator, and then Mr. Frank says, What? Let me get the key. And he went into the office and come back, and unlocked the elevator door and started the elevator down. Mr. Frank turned it on himself, and we went on down to the basement, and Mr. Frank helped me take it off the elevator, and he told me to take it back there to the sawdust pile, and I picked it up and put it on my shoulder again, and Mr. Frank, he went up the ladder and watched the trap door to see if anybody was coming, and I'd taken her back there and taken the cloth from around her and taken her hat and shoes, which I picked up upstairs right where her body was lying, and brought them down and untied the cloth and brought them back and throwed them on the trash pile in front of the furnace, and Mr. Frank was standing at the trap door. He didn't tell me where to put the thing. I laid her body down with her head toward the elevator, lying on her stomach, and the left side of her face was on the ground. The right side of her body was up, and both arms were laying down with her body by the side of her body. Mr. Frank joined me back of the elevator, and he stepped on the elevator when it got to where he was, and he said, gee, that was a tiresome job. And I told him his jaw was not as tiresome as mine was because I had to tote it all the way from where she was lying to the dressing room and in the basement from the elevator to where I left her. Then Mr. Frank hops off the elevator before it gets even with the second floor and he makes a stumble. And he hits the floor and catches with both hands and he went around to the sink to wash his hands. And I went and cut off the motor and I stood and waited for Mr. Frank to come from around there, washing his hands. And then we went on into the office and Mr. Frank... He couldn't hardly keep still. He was all the time moving about from one office to the other. Then he come back into the stenographer's office and come back and told me, Here come Emma Clark and Corinthia Hall, I understood him to say. And he come back and told me to come here and he opened the wardrobe and told me to get in there. And I was so slow about going he told me to hurry up, damn it. And Mr. Frank, whoever that was come into the office, they didn't stay so very long till Mr. Frank had gone about seven or eight minutes and I was still in the wardrobe, and he never had come to let me out. And Mr. Frank come back, and I said, Goodness alive, you kept me in there a mighty long time. And he said, Yes, see, I did. You are sweated. And then me and Mr. Frank sat down in a chair. Mr. Frank then took out a cigarette, and he gave me the box, 
and asked me, did I want to smoke? And I told him, yes, sir. And I'd taken the box and taken out a cigarette and he handed me a box of matches and I handed him the cigarette box and he told me that was all right. I could keep that. And then I told him he had some money in it and he told me that was all right. I could keep that. Mr. Frank then asked me to write a few lines on that paper, a white scratch pad he had there, and he told me what to put on there, and I asked him what he was going to do with it, and he told me to just go ahead and write. And then after I got through writing, Mr. Frank looked at it and said it was all right. And Mr. Frank looked up at the top of the house and said, Why should I hang? I have wealthy people in Brooklyn. And I asked him what about me, and he told me that was all right about me, for me to keep my mouth shut, and he would make everything all right. And then I asked him where was the money he said he was going to give me. And Mr. Frank said, here's $200. And he handed me a big roll of greenback money and I didn't count it. I stood there a little while looking at it in my hand and I told Mr. Frank not to take out another dollar for that watchman I owed. And he said he wouldn't. And the rest is just like I told you before. The reason I have not told this before is I thought Mr. Frank would get out and help me out. But it seems that he is not going to get out and I have decided to tell the whole truth about the matter. When I was looking at the money in my hand, Mr. Frank said, Let me have that and I will make it all right with you Monday, if I live and nothing happens. And he took the money back and I asked him if that was the way he done, and he said he would give it back Monday. James Conley Sworn to and subscribed before me the 29th day of May, 1913. G.C. February Notary Public, Fulton County, Georgia Conley explained his presence at the factory by saying that on Friday afternoon, Frank instructed him to meet him near Montauk Brothers, where he went every day and come to the factory to do extra work. He arrived there about 11 o'clock, he told the officers, and met Mr. Frank, behind whom he walked back to the factory. Frank had then told him to wait downstairs until he was called. He waited and fell asleep, he asserted. That day at noon, Conley was carried to the pencil factory by a half dozen detectives. In their presence and in the presence of a number of newspaper men and several of the factory employees, he dramatically reenacted his part in the crime. The Negro was repeatedly questioned by the detectives as he went through the factory, and he answered them rapidly, glibly, and without a moment's hesitation. In pointing out the place where he found the body, where he dropped it, where he got the sacks, and other points, the Negro didn't hesitate, and half the time the detectives had to trot to keep up with him. Following the illustrated lecture on his part in the crime and his recitals of the conversations, which he said took place between himself and Frank, he was carried to the superintendent's office, where he got into the wardrobe. Later, he wrote one of the notes from dictation. There, in the presence of the newspaper men, Chief Lanford asked the Negro if he had been mistreated during his stay at headquarters, and he answered in the negative. Asked by the chief if he had been promised clemency or offered any reward for the story, he again said no. From the factory, Conley was carried, not back to police headquarters, where he remained from the time he was arrested, but to the county jail, commonly known as the Tower, where the sheriff is in charge and the police and detectives have no authority. Visitors were allowed to see Conley whenever he did not object to their presence, and a number of reporters interviewed him. After he had been in the Tower two days, William Smith, an attorney first employed by a newspaper to represent the Negro, but who later remained as counsel employed direct by Conley, secured the court's agreement to return the Negro to police headquarters. The Negro charged through his attorney that friends of Frank were constantly passing by his cell, and that they had abused him, saying that he was lying, 
and that one had even drawn a pistol on him and threatened his life. Another, he said, had offered to get him whiskey. After Conley was carried back to the station house, the Solicitor General made strenuous kicks about the amount of publicity given the Negro's statements and requested the detectives to keep all visitors away from his cell. There was then an order passed that barred everyone from his cell except city detectives. This meant Harry Scott, the Pinkerton, who had given such valuable aid to the police, but who frankly admitted that he was furnishing reports of all developments to his employer, the National Pencil Company. While the order did not include them, it resulted in virtually barring from his cell all policemen and detectives, except the heads of the department and detectives Starnes and Campbell, who were then working directly under the instructions of Solicitor Dorsey. From that moment until he took the witness stand at the trial, the public heard no more from Jim Conley, and it was generally believed that he had stuck to his third story until in reply to the solicitor's question at the trial, he commenced adding new sensations. Chapter 12. Racial Prejudice Charge Conley is guilty. He is the real murderer, not Frank, and he is seeking to save his own black skin by charging the crime to the factory superintendent. Those were the words shouted by hundreds of Atlantans for the first few days after the Negro had made his sensational affidavits. And of course, the friends of Frank shouted the charge against the Negro loudest. What's the matter with the detectives? asked those who thought the Negro not an accessory but a principal in the crime. What's the matter with Dorsey? Why doesn't he make a move? Dorsey remained calm and quiet under the criticisms, and the detectives clung to the theory that Frank was the murderer, and generally they accepted the story of Jim Conley as being the truth, if not the whole truth. Dorsey is prejudiced against the Jew, and so are the detectives. This was a statement which one could hear during those turbulent days on every street corner in Atlanta, in every saloon, in every club and everywhere men gathered to discuss the great murder mystery. The detectives continued to cling to their theory, and the storm of criticism didn't move the Solicitor General. It was not without its effect, however, and the same grand jury which had indicted Frank for the Mary Fagan murder sought to indict the Negro for the same crime. If it had, Frank would probably never have faced a trial for his life. But Dorsey stood firm, and at every grand jury meeting he blocked the efforts to indict the Negro. We have Conley locked up, he told the grand juryman, and he has no more chance of escaping now than he would have if charged with the murder. No bond will be big enough to get him out of jail. Frank is already indicted, and I am firm in my conviction that he is guilty of the crime. If I am wrong, a jury of 12 men will not convict him, and then there will be plenty of time to talk about indicting Conley. Several of the grand jurors were determined to indict the Negro, and Dorsey continued his protests. I am absolutely certain that an indictment of Conley can do no good, and it may cause a miscarriage of justice. In addition, I promise you this. If I remain Solicitor General, Frank will go to trial before Conley. Finally, the grand jurors took a vote on the advisability of causing the evidence against Conley brought before them. Dorsey won his point. The feeling over the matter was so bitter that one member of the grand jury immediately went before the Superior Court and resigned from the body, declaring that it was prejudiced. Before Frank actually came to trial, another grand jury was impaneled, and over the solicitor's vigorous protest, W.D. Beatty, its foreman, called a meeting to consider the Conley matter. 
There was another hard and bitter fight, but again Dorsey came out victor. The cry that he was prejudiced became louder, but Dorsey went along undisturbed, devoting practically his entire time to the preparation of the case against Frank. Shortly after Frank was indicted, there came an incident that intensified the hatred of the Frank sympathizers for Dorsey. He heard in a roundabout way that Albert McKnight, husband of Manola, cook for the Selig family, had sensational evidence in her possession relative to the actions of Frank at home and statements alleged to have been made by members of his family. He sent for Albert and instructed one of his bailiffs to bring Manola to his office. This was on May 3rd. Albert told the solicitor a sensational story in the presence of his wife, but she refused to corroborate it. Detectives Starnes and Campbell were present at the conference. They questioned the Solicitor General about incarcerating her until they were satisfied that either she or her husband was lying. The Solicitor said that it was not in his province to order her incarcerated, but told them to do whatever they thought best. They decided to lock her up, and the Negress, screaming and fighting, and practically in hysterics, was led to a waiting patrol wagon from Dorsey's office. She remained until June 3rd, when about noon, when in the presence of attorney George Gordon, who was retained to represent her by some unknown party, she made the following affidavit. State of Georgia, County of Fulton. Personally appeared before me a notary public in and for the above state and county, Manola McKnight, who lives in the rear of 351 Pulliam Street, Atlanta, Georgia, who, being duly sworn, deposes and says, Saturday morning, April 26, 1913, Mr. Frank left home about 8 o'clock, and Albert, my husband, was there Saturday, too. Albert got there, I guess, about a quarter after one and was there when Mr. Frank come for dinner, which was about half past one. But Mr. Frank did not eat any dinner, and he left in about 10 minutes after he got there. Mr. Frank come back to the house at 7 o'clock that night, and Albert was there when he got there. Albert had gone home that evening, but he come back. But I don't know what time he got there, but he come some time before Mr. Frank did, and Mr. Frank eat supper that night about 7 o'clock. And when I left about 8 o'clock, I left Mr. Frank there. Sunday morning, I got there about 8 o'clock, and there was an automobile standing in front of the house, but I didn't pay any attention to it. But I saw a man in the automobile get a bucket of water and pour into it. Miss Lucille, Mr. Frank's wife, was downstairs, and Mr. and Mrs. Selig were upstairs. Albert was there Sunday morning, but I don't remember what time he got there. When I called them down to breakfast about half past eight, I found that Mr. Frank was gone. Mr. and Mrs. Selig eat breakfast and Miss Lucille didn't eat until Mr. Frank come back, and they eat breakfast together. I didn't hear them say anything at the breakfast table, but after dinner I understood them to say that a girl and Mr. Frank were caught at the office Saturday. I don't know who said it, but Miss Lucille and Mr. and Mrs. Selig and Mr. Frank was standing there talking after dinner. I didn't know the girl was killed until Monday evening. I understood them to say it was a Jew girl, and I asked Miss Lucille, and she said it was a Gentile. On Tuesday, Mr. Frank said to me, It is mighty bad, Manola. I might have to go to jail about this girl, and I don't know anything about it. I heard Mrs. Ranson, Mrs. Frank's sister, tell Miss Lucille that it was mighty bad, and Miss Lucille said, Yes, it is. I'm going to get after her about it. I don't know what they were talking about. Sunday, Miss Lucille said to Mrs. Selig that Mr. Frank didn't sleep so good Saturday night. 
She said he was drunk and wouldn't let her sleep with him, and she said she slept on the floor on the rug by the bed because he was drinking. Miss Lucille said Sunday that Mr. Frank told her Saturday night that he was in trouble, that he didn't know the reason why he would murder, and he told his wife to get his pistol and let him kill himself. I heard Miss Lucille say that to Mrs. Selig. It got away with Mrs. Selig mighty bad, but she didn't know what to think. I haven't heard Miss Lucille say whether she believed it or not. I don't know why Mrs. Frank didn't come to see her husband, but it was a pretty good while before she come to see him. Maybe two weeks. She would tell me, Wasn't it mighty bad that he was locked up? And she said, Manola, I don't know what I am going to do. When I left home to go to the Solicitor General's office, they told me to mind what I said. They paid me $3.50 a week, but last week she paid me $4, and one week she paid me $6.50. But at the time of this murder, I was getting $3.50 a week. And the week right after the murder, I don't remember how much they paid me. The next week, $4, and the next week, $4. One week, Mrs. Selly gave me $5, but it was not for my work, and they didn't tell me what it was for. They just said, here is $5, Manola. But of course, I understood what they meant, but they didn't tell me anything at the time. I understood it was a tip for me to keep quiet. They would tell me to mind how I talked, and Miss Lucille would give me a hat. Question. Was that the reason you didn't tell the solicitor yesterday all about this? That Miss Lucille and the others had told you not to say anything about what had happened out there? Yes, sir. Question. Is that true? Yes, sir. Question. And that is the reason why you would rather have been locked up last night than tell this? Yes, sir. Question. Has Mr. Pickett or Mr. Craven or Mr. Campbell or myself, Detective Starnes, evidently, influenced you in any way or threatened you in any way to make this statement? No, sir. Question. You make it of your own free will and accord, in their presence and the presence of Mr. Gordon, your attorney? Yes, sir. Signed, Manola McKnight. Sworn to and subscribed before me this third day of June, 1913. Signed, G.C. February. Almost immediately after signing the affidavit, Manola was released from custody, and the following day she repudiated the affidavit. She declared that her husband had told a, quote, pack of lies, end quote, on her, and that the detectives bullied and browbeat her until, in sheer desperation, she agreed to sign any paper they might fix up for her. The arrest of the cook brought forth the first statement from Mrs. Lucille Selig Frank, wife of the accused, and daughter of one of the most prominent Jews in the South. In her statement, she flayed the Solicitor General and the detectives in no uncertain terms. She said, The action of the Solicitor General in arresting and imprisoning our family cook because she would not voluntarily make a false statement against my innocent husband brings a limit to patience. This wrong is not chargeable to a detective acting under the necessity of shielding his own reputation against attack in newspapers, but of an intelligent, trained lawyer, whose sworn duty is as much to protect the innocent as to punish the guilty. My information is that this solicitor has admitted that no crime is charged against this cook, and that he had no legal right to have her arrested and imprisoned. The following statement from the Atlanta Journal undertakes to give the history of the arrest up to the time the woman was carried to the police station, in the patrol wagon, weeping and shouting in a hysterical condition. 
The Negress was arrested at the Selig residence shortly after noon Monday upon the order of Solicitor General Hugh M. Dorsey. She was carried to the solicitor's office, and that official with Detective Starnes and Campbell examined her for more than an hour. The woman grew hysterical during the vigorous examination, and finally was led from the solicitor's office to the police patrol, weeping and shouting, I am going to hang and don't know a thing about it. They tortured her for four hours with the well-known third-degree process, in the manner and with the results stated in the Atlantic Constitution of June 4th as follows. Her husband, who was also carried to the police station at noon, was freed a short while before his wife left the prison. He was present during the third degree of four hours under which she was placed in the afternoon. He is said to have declared, even in the presence of his wife, that she had told conflicting stories of Frank's conduct on the tragedy date. After she had been quizzed to a point of exhaustion, Secretary G.C. February, attached to Chief Lanford's office, was summoned to note her statement in full. It was the longest statement made by the woman since her connection with the mystery. It will be used, probably, in the trial. The Negress was calm and composed upon emerging from the examination. That the solicitor, sworn to maintain the law, should thus falsely arrest one against whom he has no charge, and whom he does not even suspect, and torture her contrary to the laws, to force her to give evidence tending to swear away the life of an innocent man, is beyond belief. Where will this end? My husband and my family and myself are the innocent sufferers now, but who will be the next to suffer? I suppose the witnesses tortured will be confined to the class who are not able to employ lawyers to relieve them from the torture in time to prevent their being forced to give false affidavits. But the lives sworn away may come from any class. It will be noted that the plan is to apply the torture until the desired affidavit is wrung from the sufferer. Then it ends, but not before. It is to be hoped that no person can be convicted of murder in any civilized country on evidence wrung from witnesses by torture. Why, then, does the solicitor continue to apply the third degree to produce testimony? How does he hope to get the jury to believe it? He can only have one hope, and that is to keep the jury from knowing the methods to which he has resorted. Of course, if he can torture witnesses into giving the kind of evidence he wants against my innocent husband— in this case, he can torture them into giving evidence against any other man in the community, in either this or any other case. I can see only one hope, and that is to let the public know exactly what this officer of the law is doing, and trust, as I do trust, to the sense of fairness and justice of the people. It is not surprising that my cook should sign an affidavit to relieve herself from torture that had been applied to her for four hours, according to the Atlantic Constitution to a point of exhaustion. It would be surprising if she would not, under such circumstances, give an affidavit. This torturing process can be used to produce testimony to be published in the newspapers to prejudice the case of anyone the solicitor sees fit to accuse. It is also valuable to prevent anyone stating facts favorable to the accused, because as soon as the solicitor finds it out, he can arrest the witness and apply the torture. It is hard to believe that practices of this nature will be countenanced anywhere in the world, outside of Russia. My husband was at home for lunch and in the evening at the hours he has stated on the day of the murder. He spent the whole of Saturday evening and night in my company, neither on Saturday nor Saturday night nor on Sunday nor at any other time did my husband by word or act or in any other way demean himself otherwise than as an innocent man. 
He did nothing unusual and nothing to arouse the slightest suspicion. I know him to be innocent. There is no evidence against him except that which is produced by torture. Of course, evidence of this kind can be produced against any human being in the world. I have been compelled to endure without fault, either on the part of my husband or myself, more than it falls to the lot of most women to bear. Slanders have been circulated in the community to the effect that my husband and myself were not happily married, and every conceivable rumor has been put afloat that would do him and me harm with the public, in spite of the fact that all our friends are aware that these statements are false, and all his friends and myself know that my husband is a man actuated by lofty ideals that forbid his committing the crime that the detectives and the solicitor are seeking to fasten upon him. I know my husband is innocent. No man could make the good husband to a woman that he has been to me and be a criminal. All his acquaintances know he is innocent. Ask every man that knows him and see if you can find one that will believe he is guilty. If he were guilty, does it not seem reasonable that you could find someone who knows him that will say he believes him guilty? Being a woman, I do not understand the tricks and arts of detectives and prosecuting officers. But I do know Leo Frank, and his friends know him. And I know and his friends know that he is utterly incapable of committing the crime that these detectives and this solicitor are seeking to fasten upon him. Respectfully yours, Mrs. Leo M. Frank. This was the first occasion in which the wife of the man charged with the brutal murder of the little factory girl had figured at all prominently in the case. Despite the fact that at the trial, the solicitor asserted that she did not go near her husband for two weeks after his incarceration, it is known by the writer that she appeared at police headquarters the day he was detained. Friends persuaded her to leave without seeing her husband, who at the time was surrounded by newspaper men and detectives. She did not go to the tower for two weeks as during that time the newspaper camera brigade waited in front of the place for her to appear. Mrs. Frank's statement brought this reply from the solicitor. I have read the statement printed in the Atlanta newspapers over the signature of Mrs. Leo M. Frank, and I have only to say, without in any wise taking issue with her premises, as I might, that the wife of a man accused of crime would probably be the last person to learn all of the facts establishing his guilt, and certainly would be the last person to admit his culpability, even though proved by overwhelming evidence to the satisfaction of every impartial citizen beyond the possibility of reasonable doubt. Since the discovery of this crime, I have rigidly adhered to my consistent policy of refraining from newspaper interviews or statements with relation to the evidence upon which the state must depend to convict and punish the perpetrator of the crime. And it is my purpose to adhere steadfastly to this policy, submitting to the jury of Fulton County citizens to be selected under the fair provision of the law the evidence upon which, alone, conviction or acquittal must depend. A bill of indictment has been found by the grand jury, composed of impartial and respected citizens of this community, and as Solicitor General of this circuit, charged with the duty of aiding in the enforcement of our laws by the prosecuting of those indicted for violating the law, I welcome all evidence from any source that will aid an impartial jury, under the charge of the court, in determining the guilt or innocence of the accused. Perhaps the most unpleasant feature, incident to the position of prosecuting attorney, arises from the fact that punishment of the guilty inevitably brings suffering to relations who are innocent of participation in the crime, but who must share the humiliation flowing from its exposure. This, however, is an evil attendant upon crime, 
and the court and their officers cannot allow their sympathies for the innocent to retard the vigorous prosecution of those indicted for the commission of crime. For were it otherwise, sentiment and not justice would dominate the administration of our laws. Hugh M. Dorsey While at the time there was considerable sentiment against the solicitor and the detectives, they were not without their backers. Especially was Dorsey lauded for his stand by the laboring people of the city and of the state. The popular sentiment, especially among the working people, continued to grow against Frank. It was charged that the newspapers of Atlanta, because of the insistence of advertisers, were not giving the state a fair deal in the case. Tremendous influences were undoubtedly brought to bear in favor of the accused man, but every move on the part of his friends seemed only to add to the sentiment against him. Sentiment by this time was recognized as a powerful factor in the case. The next sensation in the case came when Luther Z. Rosser, Frank's counsel, and a man of few words except in the courtroom, denounced Chief Lanford as insincere in his manhunt, and openly he charged the crime to Jim Conley. Chapter 13. Plants Charged to Frank About the middle of June, both sides commenced making preparations for Frank's trial, and it was even then a safe guess that it would be the South's greatest legal battle. Solicitor General Dorsey announced that he had retained Frank A. Hooper to assist him in the prosecution. Felder had dropped out of the case after the dictograph incident. Hooper was a recent comer to Atlanta and had never been pitted against the city big lawyers. However, he was for 12 years the solicitor of the Southwestern Circuit, and had made quite a reputation. Dorsey's ability had been recognized a year before, when he prosecuted Mrs. Daisy Grace, who was defended by John W. Moore and by Rosser. Although he lost the case, he handled it in a masterly manner. Reuben R. Arnold, probably the South's greatest criminal lawyer, was retained to assist in the defense. It is said that his fee was $12,500. Rosser remained as leading counsel and is alleged to have received a fee of $15,000. The trial was originally set on the Superior Court calendar for June 30th, but on June 24th, Judge L.S. Roan called the attorneys before him and frankly told them that he had promised to go to the seashore with Mrs. Roan during the first week in July and suggested postponing the case. Both sides said they were ready, although they were not, but agreed after some discussion to a postponement and the date of July 28th was fixed for the trial. The defense by this time had let it be known that its theory of the case was that Conley had killed the girl on the first floor and chucked her down the scuttle hole. To bear out this theory, a more or less important discovery is alleged to have been made. On May the 10th, L.P. McWorth and a man named Whitefield, both Pinkerton operatives, who have since been discharged, were making a search of the factory. On the first floor, near the point Jim Conley claims he sat and waited for Frank's call, they found the corner of a pay envelope, bearing the name Mary Fagan, and the parts of two numerals. Also, they found a bludgeon, with stains, which looked like blood on it. Near the scuttle hole alleged bloodstains had been found before, and near the point where the part of a pay slip was found were several pieces of twine, knotted just like those found around Mary Fagan's neck. The fines were made during the absence from the city of Harry Scott, field chief of the Pinkertons, during the investigation. Reports were made at once to the defense, but not a word was said about the matter to the city police, to whom the Pinkertons had faithfully promised to make reports before they made them to the defense. On the return of Scott to the city, 
He learned that the pay envelope, but nothing more, had been found, and he immediately informed the city police. The fact did not become public for some weeks, but when it was learned that the envelope had been found, Chief Lanford dismissed it with the cry, Plant, declaring that his men had searched the factory from top to bottom, and would have found it had it been in the place the first few days after Mary Fagan was murdered. The place had been thoroughly cleaned, in addition, he said, by the factory officials. A week or two after the part of a pay envelope was found, fingerprint experts examined it. But after they had used all known methods, announced that they were unable to find any trace of a fingerprint on it. It was several weeks later that it became known that the bludgeon was also discovered near the place where Conley admitted lying in wait. Chief Lanford declared that he was in ignorance of the discovery of the bludgeon, but it was also dismissed as a plant. Lanford severely criticized H.B. Pierce, superintendent of the Pinkerton Agency, for not acquainting the city officials of the alleged find. Before the trial commenced, Pierce had left the city, and the Pinkertons have now discharged him. The assertions of the city detectives that evidence was being planted caused another wave of sentiment against Frank. There was one other development of importance before the trial. W.H. Mincy, an insurance agent and schoolteacher, made an affidavit to the defense that on Saturday, April 26th, Conley confessed to him that he had murdered a girl that morning. Mincy asserted that late in the afternoon, he was at the corner of Electric Avenue and Carter Streets, near the home of Conley, when he approached the black, asking that he take an insurance policy. The Negro told him, he said, to go along, that he was in trouble. Asked what his trouble was, Mincy swore that Conley replied he had killed a girl. You are Jack the Ripper, are you? said Mincy. No, he says, Conley replied. I killed a white girl and you better go along or I will kill you. After some words, Mincy says he left the belligerent Negro. The substance of Conley's affidavit became public only a short time before the trial commenced, and while Mincy was teaching school at Rising Fawn in North Georgia. Chief Lanford remembered that Mincy had called at police headquarters while Conley was making one of his sensational statements, and asked to see him on the pretext that he wanted to identify a drunken Negro he had seen the Saturday of the tragedy. He made no intimation then, the chief asserts, of a confession and after looking at Conley, said that he could not identify him. It suffices to say that Mincy, although brought to Atlanta on a subpoena, was never called upon by the defense to take the witness stand. It is said that Dorsey was, quote, loaded for him, end quote, and had 25 witnesses who would try to impeach him. Mincy, it is said, has written several books on mind reading, and the solicitor had copies of the books ready to use them in his cross-examination. The general value of expert testimony is shown by an incident of the case. Jim Conley had never admitted writing but one of the notes, so the solicitor continued to have both of them examined by experts. Six so-called experts were ready to go on the witness stand and swear that Frank, not Conley, had written both notes. Finally, in desperation, Dorsey took them to New York, where one of the country's best-known experts declared that Jim Conley wrote both of them. On his return, the solicitor forced the confession from the Negro that he did write both notes. Chapter 14. South's Greatest Legal Battle In anticipation of the great legal battle to come, a crowd began to collect in front of the courthouse shortly after daylight on the morning of Monday, July 28th. At 8 o'clock, an hour before time set for the opening of court, 
the intersection of Hunter and Pryor Streets was black with people. It was with the greatest difficulty that a squad of police, abetted with a corps of deputy sheriffs, kept the thoroughfares open to traffic. Occasionally, a car would grind up to the corner and stop while the human mass grudgingly opened and let it by. Hundreds surged through the entrance of the red building and up the single short flight of stairs to the door of the room in which the trial was to be held. Inside, a dozen electric fans and a number of ozonators had been installed to keep the air pure and the atmosphere as cool as possible through the long, hot days to come. Benches had replaced the chairs and the seating capacity had been increased to 250. Only talesmen, attorneys, newspaper men, intimate friends of the prisoner, and a few spectators were admitted. The witnesses summoned by the state, who numbered over 100, were assigned to a courtroom on the second floor to wait until they were called to testify. Among them were scores of factory girls, heads of departments, policemen, and others who had knowledge of some phase of the case. Frank was brought from his cell in the Fulton County Jail shortly before 7 o'clock. He was met by his mother, Mrs. Ray Frank, and his wife upon his arrival, and spent the intervening hours until court convened chatting with them and other relatives. He appeared glad that his long wait in jail was at an end. He remarked that he expected an acquittal. He was led into the courtroom shortly before 9 o'clock and chose a seat directly in front of the judge's rostrum. His mother and his wife were seated on either side of him. A few minutes later, attorney Luther Z. Rosser, Reuben R. Arnold, and Herbert Haas arrived. They were followed by a dozen assistants carrying documents and books of law. Solicitor General Hugh M. Dorsey, his special assistant, Frank A. Hooper, and assistant solicitor A. E. Stevens were the last of the lawyers to appear. Immediately upon his arrival, Mr. Arnold, on behalf of the defense, announced that he was ready to proceed with the trial. Solicitor Dorsey stood ready to vigorously oppose a motion for a delay. Promptly at 9 o'clock, Judge L.S. Roan mounted the bench. Sheriff Mangum and Chief Deputy Plenty Minor rapped for order, and the hubbub in the audience ceased. A hush fell over the room. The famous trial had begun. The clerk of court began calling the names of the veneermen. This completed, eight panels of twelve each were organized from the 144 talesmen summoned. One at a time, the various squads marched into the jury box for the purpose of presenting excuses if they had any to offer. Several were dismissed by the court on various grounds. After this formality, Judge Roan instructed Solicitor Dorsey to call the names of the witnesses. They were brought down from their room upstairs and responded to roll call. Only the names of 26 of the actual material state witnesses were called. Solicitor Dorsey announced that he had summoned many others whose names he would announce later. He then called these. J.W. Coleman, stepfather of the murdered girl. Mrs. J.W. Coleman, the mother of Mary Fagan. George W. Epps, a newsboy. Police Sergeant L.S. Dobbs, city detective. L.S. Starnes, W.W. Rogers, a court bailiff. City Detective John Black, Miss Grace Hicks. L.M. Gant, Pinkerton Detective Harry Scott. City Detective B.B. Hazlitt, E.F. Holloway, M.B. Darley, William A. Geesling, Dr. Claude Smith, city bacteriologist. Dr. J.W. Hurt, coroner's physician. Dr. H.F. Harris, President of the State Board of Health, E.L. Perry, E.S. Smith, Miss Montine Stover, Albert McKnight, Colored, Manola McKnight, Colored, Miss Helen Ferguson, Mrs. Arthur White, 
L. Stanford. Three of the list did not answer. One was Detective Hazlitt, who was announced to appear later. Another was Albert McKnight, Negro, husband of Manola McKnight, who was cook at the Selig and Frank home. An attachment was issued for the Negro. L. Stanford, the third witness who did not answer, it was stated, has received a subpoena to appear in court Tuesday. The name of James Conley, confessed accomplice to the hiding of the body, was not called. Solicitor Dorsey announced, however, that he had not abandoned his intention of calling him to the stand. At the instruction of Judge Roan, the defense then called the names of the following witnesses, all of whom responded. F. Sajidley, Annie Hickson, Mrs. Levy, Mrs. Josephine Selig, Emile Selig, H. J. Henze, R. H. Haas, W. H. Mincy, who did not answer, J. T. Spear, E. F. Skipper, who did not answer, E. L. Centel, May Barrett, C. H. Carson, Mrs. Rebecca Carson, Harry Denham, Harry Gottheimer, Miss Corinthia Hall, Miss Hattie Hall, Mary Burke, Lemmy Quinn, Herbert J. Schiff, Ella Thomas, C. B. Gilbert, Frank Payne, Eula Flowers, Alonzo Mann, Joseph Steger, Ike Strauss, J. C. Loeb, L. J. Cohen, Emma Bibb, Mrs. Bessie White, Joe Williams, Wade Campbell, William McKinley, J. E. Lyons, Dora Lavender, M. O. Nix, Jerome Michael, Mrs. M. G. Michael, George W. Parrott, Mrs. M. W. Meyer, Rabbi Marks, William Taylor, Mrs. Beatrice Taylor, Fred Weller, Mr. and Mrs. Charles Eisenbach, Carl Wolfsheimer, Ed Montag, J. D. Fleming, T. T. Brandt, Flossie Shields, Dora Small, Mrs. R. Freeman, Charles Leake, Mrs. Ike Strauss, Mrs. T. J. Cohen, Milton H. Cleveland, Julia Fuss, Walter Pride, J. C. Matthews, W. B. Bowen, M. W. Meyer, A. E. Meyer, A. E. Marcus and Mrs. Marcus, A. E. Haas, Ike Haas, Leonard Haas, Leopold Haas, William Montag, Ike Hirschberg, A. B. Levy, Bert Kaufman, Robert Schwab, Otto Schwab, William Rosenfeld, Sidney Levy, Louis Elsus, J. C. Gershon, George Gershon, Walter Rich, B. Wildauer, Sidney Levy, Sol Samuels, and Arthur Heyman. At 10.40 o'clock, the first panel was called into court for examination. The 12 men took their seats in the jury box, and Solicitor Dorsey asked the usual formal questions of each. Are you or your wives related by blood or marriage to the defendant, deceased, or prosecutor? Have you, from having seen the crime committed or having heard any of the testimony delivered on oath, formed or expressed any opinion as to guilt or innocence of the prisoner at the bar? Have you any prejudice or bias resting on your mind either for or against the defendant? Is your mind perfectly impartial as between the state and the accused? Are you conscientiously opposed to capital punishment? As each veneerman qualified under those questions, the solicitor would proceed with the usual legal formula, announcing competent, and directing 
Juror, look on prisoner. Prisoner, look on juror. Each member of the first panel was excused for cause or by peremptory challenges. The second and third panels were more fruitful, however, each netting four jurors. A. H. Hensley had the distinction of being the first peer chosen. He was passed by both sides at 11.40 o'clock. At 1.15 o'clock, 11 jurors had been selected from the various squads of talesmen that were examined in quick succession. The rapidity with which the box had been filled surprised everyone. As one after another, the members of the eight and last panel expressed bias and prejudice or declared that they already had a fixed opinion. It was feared, however, that it would be necessary to summon another veneer of talesmen before the jury would be completed. The last man called, C.J. Bosshart, was accepted. He was the 144th talesman, and had he been disqualified, it would have delayed the trial several hours. The 12 men selected to decide Frank's fate were M. Johenning, W.S. Woodward, J.T. Osborne, A.H. Hensley, F.V.L. Smith, J.T. Higdon, Dater Townsend, W.S. Metcalf, F.E. Winburn, A.L. Wisby, Chaz J. Bosshart, and W.M. Jeffries. All except Bosshart were married. At 1.30 o'clock, Judge Roan ordered a recess until 3 o'clock. Frank ate the first of a series of dinners in the antechamber in the rear of the courtroom. With him were his wife and mother and friends. At noon, he seemed cheerful and declared that he was glad the tedious work of getting a jury was over. The jury, which had lunched in a downtown restaurant, was returned to the courtroom at 3 o'clock and five minutes later, Mrs. J.W. Coleman, mother of the slain girl, was called to the stand. She was the first of the scores of witnesses who testified at the trial. As she stepped upon the platform and seated herself in the witness chair, a hush fell upon the courtroom. It was the first of many dramatic scenes of the trial. She was clothed in deep black. Talking slowly and in a voice that could scarcely be heard beyond the jury box, Mrs. Coleman, in answer to question put by the solicitor, told of last seeing her little daughter. Mary had helped her with the housework on the morning of Saturday, April 26th, she said, and after partaking of a meal of cabbage and biscuits, had left home at 11.50 o'clock with the intention of going to the pencil factory to draw the $1.20 due her for two days' work. At the time, little significance was attached to the testimony relating to the food the girl had partaken of. Later, this point formed one of the most vital issues of the whole case, because the contents of the stomach of the girl were used by the state to prove that she had been murdered within an hour after eating. Mrs. Coleman broke down on the stand and sobbed when called upon to identify clothes worn by her daughter. She regained her composure to such an extent that she was able to answer a few immaterial questions asked by defense lawyers, however. George Epps, a playmate of the victim of the murder and one of the last people to see her alive, was the second witness called by the state in forging its chain of evidence. He told of riding to Forsyth and Marietta Streets with a little girl, and leaving her five minutes before she entered the pencil factory. It was agreed between them that they were to meet at two o'clock to view the Memorial Day parade. She did not keep the appointment, the lad testified. Old Newt Lee followed the boy to the stand. For two hours Monday afternoon, he withstood the grill of Luther Z. Rosser, at no time becoming confused or perturbed, and when court convened again Tuesday morning, he remained in the witness chair under the merciless fire of questions three hours. He left the stand, his story unshaken. 
In quaint Negro dialect, he described the finding of the body, told of calling the police, of meeting Frank rubbing his hands in the pencil factory on the afternoon of the murder. He was taken over and over his story several times, but avoided every trap laid for him by the shrewd cross-examiner of the defense. All I want is a chew of Becca, any kind, was his request when he was led out of the courtroom. His comment on Luther Rosser was, He's pretty terrible. He sorter wants you to say things just his way. But I was dare to tell the truth, and I told it. At adjournment Tuesday, the state had laid the foundation for its case against the young factory superintendent. They had proved that she left home at 11.50 o'clock and introduced witnesses to show that she arrived at Forsyth and Marietta Streets at 12.07 o'clock, or a few minutes before that time. They introduced witnesses to show that she went toward the pencil factory and that she probably never left the building, inasmuch as she never returned home and failed to keep later appointments. Several of the policemen who answered the first call of Newtley and went to the pencil factory and others who knew of the first steps in the investigation of the officials were called and told of the finding, the position and appearance of the body when they viewed it, and the surroundings. During the four-part of the trial, Leo M. Frank's expression of quiet confidence surprised everyone that saw him. He sat between his wife and his mother, both of whose faces were passive and emotionless, for the most part, with his arms crossed and his gaze centered on the jury, the witness stand, or one of the attorneys. He spoke little. His manner was not that of indifference. Apparently, he analyzed every piece of testimony entered against him, and he seemed to comprehend all the legal questions that arose. Nerves, evidently, were not in his makeup. He was calm, cool, and appeared sure of himself and his cause. He displayed no more anxiety than any of the spectators. As he sat, a few feet from the judge's stand at the left of his attorneys, friends and relatives clustered behind him, he seemed the smallest man in the long, wide room. The jurymen in the box almost towered above him. He could just see the judge over the top of the rostrum. He was attired in a blue mohair suit and wore nose glasses, which he wiped on his handkerchief occasionally. He was almost boyish in appearance, but his bearing had a firmness and determination which proved his years. Never once, during the long days to come, did he exhibit any more feeling than on the first two days of the trial. His manner was the same in victory as in defeat. The spectators might complain of the heat, the lawyers of long hours and hard work, the bailiffs of difficulty in handling the crowds that stormed the courtroom. But Frank was the same every day and every hour of the day. He passed the time of day with a few of the newspaper men with whom he had come in contact in the first few days following his arrest before he entered into his three months' silence in the tower. Further than that, he would not go with reporters, and his wish was respected. Every morning in the jail, he was up at seven o'clock, took a bath, and less than half an hour later accompanied Sheriff Mangum to the courthouse. He was known as the most obedient prisoner in the jail. So great was the confidence of the county officers in him that he never was handcuffed on the rides from jail to court and court to jail. He was permitted unusual freedom about the courtroom and never once did he violate an admonition of a guardian. Sheriff Mangum said of him, He is the best prisoner I ever had. He does everything I tell him. He ate his breakfast, in fact all of his meals with the exception of dinner in the evening, in an answer room. In the mornings and at noons, he always entertained from half a dozen to a score of friends. Among them were many of the prominent men of the city. 
The manner in which his acquaintances clung to him through his many hours of need was one of the features of the whole case, and all believed in his innocence. His employers, the men he worked with in the factory, scores of women subordinates, all hotly proclaimed that he was a victim of circumstances and did not have the blood of Mary Fagan on his hands. Even the charge of moral perversion which was brought against him during the trial did not shake this confidence. Witnesses who accused him of improper relations with women employees of the factory were termed perjurers, and women who late in the trial testified that he was not of good character were described by one of the accused man's friends as fanatics. Chapter 15. The State's Chain Wednesday morning, Solicitor Dorsey began to forge his chain of circumstantial evidence around the prisoner. R.P. Barrett, a machinist employed in the metal room where Mary Fagan was employed, told of his finding blood spots near the water cooler in this room, and several strands of hair wrapped around the handle of a lathe several feet away. He said that the spots were smeared over with a white substance known as haskeline, which is used on an eyelet machine. He found a broom nearby, which he said from its appearance looked as if it had been used to spread the fluid over the floor and conceal the blood. This was one of the most vital bits of testimony introduced by the state. On it, the whole theory of the murder was based. That Frank enticed his victim back into the metal room when she entered his office to get her pay, and killed her when she refused to submit to his abuse. Barrett was later corroborated by James Conley, who said he dropped the body of the little girl on the spot where blood was found, when he carried her from the second floor to the basement at Frank's direction. Barrett also told of finding a portion of a pay envelope on the floor on the Monday morning after the murder. His testimony was vigorously attacked by the defense when it opened its case and by attorneys Rosser and Arnold in their closing argument. They sought to show that he was over-anxious to find evidence. Attorney Arnold referred to him as Christopher Columbus Barrett. His story was unshaken, however, and apparently was believed by the jury. Sergeant L.S. Dobbs, one of the party which was first led to the dead girl's side on the morning of the discovery of the body, told of the marks of dragging on the basement floor. The defense sought to show on cross-examination that the distinct track did not begin at the elevator but a few feet away at the foot of the ladder leading from the scuttle hole in the first floor. Sergeant Dobbs' testimony was to the effect that indications of the dragging of the body began at the side of the elevator pit. City Detective J.N. Starnes, formal prosecutor of the case, was called by the solicitor to testify to many important facts regarding the investigation of the city police. He told of Newt Lee's reenacting in pantomime the discovery of the body and declared that he was satisfied that the story told of the discovery of the body by the Negro was true. The sleuth testified that on the morning after the discovery of the body, Frank walked into the office of the pencil factory and remarked to General Manager Darley, you see, I've got another suit. This remark, the witness testified, was later viewed by the police as significant inasmuch as the prisoner, who was at that time not suspected of the murder, called attention to a change of clothes on the day following the killing. Starnes testified that on Sunday morning, Frank was nervous and trembly. He also described the blood spots on the floor of the metal room and swore that 50 feet from the elevator, he found more blood on the head of a nail. He identified the chips containing the alleged blood spots, which had been chiseled up from the floor. Frequent wrangles marked the first few days of the case. Legal points were constantly under debate, 
and several times during the first week as well as later in the trial, the jury was excused. One of these wrangles occurred on the afternoon of Tuesday, July 29th. Solicitor Dorsey sought to introduce in evidence a diagram of the pencil factory, bearing a dotted line showing the route Conley asserted he took in carrying the body from the metal room to the basement. The defense strenuously objected to the introduction of this in evidence, complaining principally about the key explaining the drawing. For an hour, the four lawyers addressed the court for and against the introduction of this in evidence. It finally was allowed after the objectionable key had been removed. Wednesday, Boots Rogers declared that Frank was, quote, extremely nervous, end quote, on the morning of April 27th when he drove to his home in an automobile with city detective John Black to bring the superintendent to the scene of the crime. He said that Frank rubbed his hands continually, paced the floor anxiously, and asked abrupt questions. The state sought to prove that Frank avoided looking on the face of the dead girl at the undertaking parlors. Rogers testified that the superintendent, when he arrived at the undertaking parlors, passed on through the room in which the body lay into another. He could not swear positively, however, that Frank did not see the corpse. Other witnesses called by the state corroborated Rogers. They were contradicted later by Frank in his statement to the jury, the defendant maintaining that he saw the girl's face not only once, but twice on Sunday, April 27th. Miss Grace Hicks, sister-in-law of Rogers, who first identified the body, told of her trip to the morgue on the morning after the murder. The defense gained a point by an admission from her that the girls in the metal room frequently combed their hair over their machines, and that there was a gas jet a few feet from the lathe on which Barrett discovered the strands of hair supposed to have been Mary Fagan's. The girl also testified that paint was kept in the adjoining room. She said, however, that she had never seen any spilled on the floor of the metal room. City Detective John Black occupied the stand several hours. He was subjected to one of the most merciless grillings of the entire case at the hands of Attorney Rosser. The methods of the police department were held up for criticism and ridicule by the attorney, and once or twice, under the fierce cross-examination, Black appeared confused. Once he admitted that he was muddled as to his facts. Black corroborated Rogers, Starnes, and other witnesses who testified Frank was nervous on the morning he was brought to the undertaking parlors and later to the factory. He also confirmed the testimony of Detective Starnes regarding later investigations of the police. Through him, Solicitor Dorsey brought out the fact that the finding of the bloody club and supposed spots on the floor near the scuttle hole leading to the basement had never been reported to the police by the Pinkerton Agency, although the information had been placed in the hands of the defense attorneys. He testified also that Frank and others connected with the pencil factory had withheld from the police the information that Conley could write. Although they attempted, the witness declared he believed, to divert suspicion toward others. During the cross-examination, attorney Rosser asked the detective about the bloody shirt that had been found at Newtley's house in a search instituted by the police. Black identified the shirt, which was exhibited to the witness at the request of the defense, as one which he found in the bottom of a barrel at the Negro's home. A stiff legal tilt followed the attempt of the defense to introduce testimony relating to the shirt. Solicitor Dorsey declared to the court that the state contended the shirt was a plant. Later in the trial, he intimated that Frank had gone to the home of the night watchman on the Sunday following the murder and hidden the shirt. Dorsey brought out the point that the blood was on both sides of the shirt, in the examination of Black. He contended that it would have been impossible for it to get on the garment in this manner if the garment were worn. 
Detective Harry Scott of the Pinkerton Agency, which was retained on the case by the pencil factory company at the instigation of Frank, took the stand on the morning of July 31st. He told of his visit to the factory on the Monday after the murder and of being shown over the factory by the man against whom he later helped to gather evidence. Among other features which the solicitor attempted to prove through this witness was the fact that Frank had attempted to direct suspicion toward Gant. In reply to a question put by the solicitor, the witness replied that Frank had not told him that Gant was acquainted with the murdered girl when he was employed at the factory. Dorsey declared that he had been misled by the witness on this proposition when the defense attorneys objected to his attempting to bring this point out. Attorney Rosser contended that the prosecutor would have to declare to the court that he had been entrapped by the witness before he could pursue this line of questioning. Dorsey refused to make the allegation that was later allowed to put the queries. The intimation that he had been guilty of reticence brought a sharp retort from Detective Scott. From the stand, he demanded to know of the solicitor if he thought he was holding back information. The state's representative declared that he did not, but contended that the detective had forgotten this detail. He then asked Scott, Was any suggestion made to you subsequent to your employment about the withholding of evidence? Scott replied, About the first week in May, Mr. Pierce and I went to the office of Herbert J. Haas, attorney for Frank, to hold a conference relative to the Pinkerton's position in the investigation. I told him that there was strong suspicion against Frank. The last sentence was ruled out. After a conversation, Mr. Haas said that he would rather we would submit our reports to him before we did to the police. We told him we would get out of the case before we would do that. Thursday afternoon, the fourth day of the trial, several surprises were sprung. Mel Stanford, a youthful employee of the factory, testified that he had swept the floor of the metal room on the Friday preceding the murder and that the blood spots nor Haskellene were on the floor then. He said that he had seen spots of various colors on the floor of the factory at different times, but that never had he seen one of the same color and appearance as those presumed to have been the blood of Mary Fagan on the floor of the metal room. A vigorous cross-examination at the hands of Luther Z. Rosser failed to shake his statement. Dr. Claude Smith, city bacteriologist, identified the chips taken from the floor of the metal room and declared that on one of them he had discovered blood corpuscles. The defense brought out in cross-examining him that the corpuscles could have been there for several months or possibly several years if not disturbed. William A. Giesling, embalmer employed at the parlors of P.J. Bloomfield, declared that Mary Fagan had been dead from 12 to 15 hours when he removed it from its hiding place in the pencil factory basement. The blood had settled and rigor mortis had begun. He told of embalming the remains and of examinations of the wounds on the body he had made. E.F. Holloway, day watchman at the factory, was accused by the solicitor of having entrapped him when he testified that he had left the switchbox which controlled the motor of the elevator unlocked on the day of the murder. This was in direct contradiction to the state's theory of the murder. Solicitor Dorsey's contention was that, after Frank had called Conley to help him dispose of the body, he went to the office and got the key of the receptacle before he could start the machinery. Holloway declared that he had left the building about noon, Saturday, and that he used the motor, which also was geared to a circular saw, to cut two boards for Arthur White and Denham, who were working on the fourth floor of the factory. He said that after he had finished this work, he placed the boards on the elevator and started it to the fourth floor. Solicitor Dorsey produced an affidavit made several weeks before by the witness in the presence of several people. In this document, Holloway declared that he had left the elevator locked when he started for home. 
The witness did not deny the affidavit, but he declared at the time of making it he had forgotten sawing the planks. Deeper consideration of the matter had caused him to remember the incident he asserted. Didn't you tell a Pinkerton detective on May 9th to come around next day and he might find some evidence? Was one of the many questions asked this witness by the solicitor. I did not, was the reply. On May 10th, Detective McWorth of the Pinkertons found the alleged blood spots, the bludgeon, and several pieces of cord similar to the one by which the little girl was strangled. Dorsey intimated that Holloway might be able to shed some light on how these things came there, inasmuch as the state contended that this evidence, also, was planted for the purpose of diverting suspicion from Frank. Didn't you once boast that Conley was your nigger? asked the solicitor. The witness denied that he ever had. Mrs. Arthur White, who took the stand on Friday, August 1st, declared that she had entered the building to see her husband at 11.30 o'clock, and, after talking to him for a few minutes, left the factory. It was 10 minutes to 12 when she departed. 30 minutes later she returned, she said, and entered Frank's office previous to going to the fourth floor, to again see her husband. Frank was bending over the safe in the office when she entered, according to her statement, and appeared startled at her approach. Mrs. White testified that she later went to the fourth floor, where her husband and Harry Denham were working. She remained until 12.50 o'clock when Frank appeared on the fourth floor and told her that he was going to lock the building before going to lunch, and that she had better leave then. She took his suggestion, she said. Her testimony was of vital importance, because the state maintained that the murder had been committed between her first and second visits. Mrs. White described Frank's conduct when he came to the fourth floor as natural. The woman also told of seeing a Negro lurking in the shadows in the hallway on the first floor, as she was leaving the building. Conley was brought before her, but she could not positively identify him. He answered the same general description, however, she said. General Manager M.V. Darley, called to the stand, admitted that Frank was nervous on the morning of Sunday, April 27th. He said that the superintendent explained it by saying that he had been called from bed summarily that morning and had come down to the factory before he had an opportunity to drink his usual cup of coffee. Darley said that he, too, had looked at the punches in the time slip made by Newt Lee and had failed to detect the alleged discrepancies in them. It would have been possible for a man who understood the mechanism of the clock to manufacture a slip which could not be detected from the genuine in five minutes. Friday afternoon, August 2nd, the defense called Dr. H. F. Harris, secretary of the State Board of Health, to the stand. He was one of the surprises of the case. Through his testimony, the defense sought to clinch the fact that the little girl never left the factory after entering it. Dr. Harris performed an autopsy on the body when it was exhumed nine days after the original burial. He had taken portions of the stomach and of the girl's sexual organs and examined them exhaustively. Until the time he took the stand, no intimation of the sensational testimony he was to give had reached the ears of the public. He declared that the girl had met death between half and three-quarters of an hour after she ate her noonday meal. He reached this conclusion from the state of the cabbage and other food found in her stomach. Dr. Harris was later corroborated by Dr. J.W. Hurt, county physician, and other physicians in Sir Rebuttal. The defense sought by the testimony of half a dozen prominent physicians to prove that Dr. Harris was hazarding only a wild guess when he attempted to fix the time of death by this investigation. Others testified, however, that it was not a guess but a scientific opinion. 
Of most vital importance was the testimony of Dr. Harris, that although no criminal assault had been committed upon the girl before death, some kind of violence had been done her. This was proven by the state of her organs, he declared. Dr. Harris said that the eye of the victim had been blackened before death, probably by a blow, and that the wound on her head, which, he declared, undoubtedly produced unconsciousness, was produced by a sharp instrument. It would have been impossible to have inflicted it with the round club found near the elevator pit, he said. Dr. Harris collapsed on the stand in the midst of a grueling cross-examination replete with hypothetical questions at the hands of Attorney Arnold. Saturday afternoon, Dr. Hurt was called and confirmed to a considerable extent the testimony of Dr. Harris. He described the wounds on the body of the girl in detail. On cross-examination, the defense gained admissions by which they sought later to prove that the evidences of alleged assault found by Dr. Harris might have been the result of Dr. Hurt's examination of the corpse immediately after death. Alfred McKnight, husband of Manola McKnight, cook in the Selig home, was called to the stand on Saturday, August 2nd. He testified that he had been in the kitchen of the residence on Saturday, April 26th, and that Frank entered the dining room and viewed himself in the mirror for a few minutes. His testimony was later attacked by his wife, who repudiated on the stand the sensational affidavit she had previously made to the police. W.F. Anderson, call officer, G.C. February, stenographer in the detective department, chief of police Beavers, Detective Wagoner, and patrolman Lassiter were also called on Saturday. Their testimony, with the exception of that of Chief Beavers, was largely corroborative of that already introduced. The police department head told of searching the vicinity of the scuttle hole leading to the basement a few days after the murder, and his failure to see the blood, cord, and club later discovered there by Detective McWorth. Miss Helen Ferguson, a factory girl, told the jury of having sought out Frank Friday evening to ask him to give her Mary Fagan's pay envelope. Frank refused to deliver it into her custody, she said. On this day, also, which was the last of the first week, the defense protested because Judge Roan had on his desk a newspaper with a large red headline, State Adds Links to Chain. It was the contention of the defense that the paper had unwittingly been exposed to the jury. Immediately after the paper was alleged to have been exposed to the jury, attorneys Rosser, Arnold, and Haas retired from the courtroom to hold a consultation as to what action would be taken. It was thought for a time that a mistrial would be asked. After a conference of five minutes, however, the lawyers returned to the courtroom and asked that the jury be excused. After the 12 men had left the room, attorney Rosser took the floor and announced that it was not the intention of the defense to ask a mistrial at that time. Solicitor Dorsey asked that the jury be cautioned against being influenced by anything they had seen or were likely to see in the future. Judge Roan did this when the jury was returned. Several other witnesses were called during the first week of the trial, but their testimony developed nothing that had not already been disclosed in the investigation of the police and private detectives, and was mostly corroborative of important phases of the case. Chapter 16 Perversion Charged The second week of the trial opened on Monday, August 4th. It was then that the state introduced its most important witness, James Conley, a Negro sweeper in the factory and the only witness who connected Frank directly with the crime. The public waited anxiously for the Negro to take the stand, and when it was announced that he would be questioned on this day, a crowd larger than any previous one sieged the courthouse.
The police had instituted the plan of making spectators get in line to await the opening of the doors, and on Monday, two lines of men in single file extended around the front of the courthouse and nearly to the back of the building on each side. It began to form shortly after daylight and by 8.30 o'clock had swelled to several hundred. A majority of the waiters were disappointed, however, owing to the limited seating capacity of the courtroom. Before court opened, Judge L.S. Roan announced from the bench that all the women present would have to leave. This was the first direct intimation of the sensational charges of perversion and misconduct among the factory girls, which were introduced. At 9 o'clock, James Conley took the stand. He was the same Conley who had swept the floors of the pencil factory in the past, the same Conley who had been hailed into police court on disorderly conduct charges, the same Conley, except that he was sleeker than when he entered the jail and he had been shaved and bathed and dressed to be presentable before the jury. With little questioning by Solicitor Dorsey, he told glibly his story of carrying the body of the dead girl to the basement at the direction of Superintendent Frank. Then he went further. He made the sensational assertion that once he had caught Frank in a compromising attitude with a woman in his office, at the factory, and that on previous Saturday afternoons and holidays he had watched at the front door of the building, while Frank kept clandestine appointments with women on the second floor. On Friday afternoon, the witness declared Frank had instructed him to return to the factory Saturday morning. What time did he say for you to come? asked Solicitor Dorsey. At 8.30, replied the Black. Who got there first Saturday morning? We met at the door and I followed him in. What conversation did you have? After we got in, on Saturday morning, Mr. Frank said that I was a little early. I told him it was the time he'd said for me to come. He said I was a little too early for what he wanted. He said he wanted me to watch for him like I had other Saturdays. What had you done other Saturdays? I had watched for him while he was upstairs talking with young ladies. What did you do? I would watch at the door and let him know. How often had you done this? Several times. I don't know how many. Was Frank up there alone on those Saturdays? No, sometimes there'd be two young ladies and sometimes other men from the factory. Was Mr. Frank ever alone there? Yes, sir. Last Thanksgiving Day. Who came then? A tall, heavy-built woman. What did you do then? I stayed just like I did on April 26th and watched at the door. What had Mr. Frank told you to do on Thanksgiving Day? I did like he told me and locked the door when he stomped on the floor after the lady had come in. That was Thanksgiving Day, 1912? Yes, sir. Now, tell what happened on April 26th. We both went inside. He told me I was a little early. I said, no, sir, that was the time he told me to come. He said I was a little early for what he'd told me to do. He told me he wanted me to watch. I told him I had to go to the Capital City Laundry and asked him what time he wanted me to come back. He told me that I could go from the Capital City Laundry to Nelson and Forsyth Streets and watch there till he came back from Montauk's. Conley continued his narration of the events on the morning of April 26th. He told of going to the Capital City Laundry and of meeting Frank at Nelson and Forsyth Streets. What happened when you returned to the factory? He was asked by Dorsey. We went in, and Mr. Frank told me about the lock on the front door. If you turn the knob this way, nobody can get in, he said. Then Mr. Frank told me to come over and said, set on that box. 
He said, there will be a young lady up here pretty soon, and we want to chat a while. Mr. Frank said, when I stamp, that's her. And when I whistle, you come up and say you want to borrow some money, and that will give her a chance to get out. Did he say anything else before he went upstairs? Asked the solicitor. Yes, sir, said the witness. He hit my chest right here. The Negro pointed to a place near his right shoulder. And he said, now, boy, don't let Mr. Darley see you. Answering questions put by the solicitor, Conley told of seeing various people come and go while he lurked in the hallway. At about 12 o'clock, the Negro said he saw Lemmy Quinn, Mary Fagan, and Montine Stover enter the building in the order named. The former and latter came out, but Mary never came down, he said. After she went up, the witness said, I heard her footsteps going toward the office and then steps toward the metal room. The next thing I heard was her screaming. Then what did you hear? persisted the state's prosecutor. I didn't hear any more, answered the Negro. Who was the next person you saw go upstairs? The next one I saw go up was Miss Montine Stover. How was she dressed? She was wearing tennis shoes and a red coat. Have you seen Miss Stover since then? Yes, sir, once. How long did she stay upstairs? She stayed a pretty good while. Not so very long, either. Then what? She came back down. What happened then? Then I heard tiptoes coming from the metal department. Where did they go? I don't know, sir. What next? Next, I heard tiptoes running back toward the metal department. Then what? Then I sat back on the box and kind of went to sleep. All right, what next? Next, I heard Mr. Frank stomping over my head. I waked up the first time he stomped. Then I heard him stomp two more times. He stomped three times altogether. Then what did you do? I got up and locked the door like Mr. Frank told me to do. Then I sat back down on the box. How long did you sit there? A little while. All right, then what happened? I heard Mr. Frank whistle. How long after the stomping was it before you heard him whistle? Just a few minutes. Well, what did you do when you heard Frank whistle? I went upstairs like he told me to do when he whistled. Mr. Frank was standing at the head of the stairs, shivering. He was rubbing his hands together and acting funny. Show the jury how he was acting. The Negro stood up, made his legs tremble, rubbed his hands together, rubbed his right backward and forward from the back of the head to the face and reverse. What did Frank have? He held a little cord in his hand. Did you look at his eyes? Yes, sir. How did they look? His eyes was large. They looked funny and wild. Did you notice his face? Yes, sir. It was red, very red. Solicitor Dorsey produced the cord which had been taken from around the neck of the corpse of the body of Mary Fagan. Is that the kind of cord he had in his hand? He asked. Yes, sir. Just like that answered the Negro. Did Frank say anything to you? Yes, sir. He asked me if I saw the little girl pass along up there. I told him, yes, I saw two, but one went out, but that I didn't see the other one come out. Conley testified that Frank told him that he had gone back to the metal room and that Mary Fagan had resisted advances that he had made. Frank said that there had been a struggle in which the girl had fallen and hurt herself. Conley declared that Frank had remarked, you know, Jim, that I am not like other men. Referring to a previous happening when the Negro had interrupted the young superintendent in peculiar relations with another girl. 
He told me to go back to the metal room, said the Negro. He said, we've got to get her out. Hurry up now and there will be some money in it for you. Did you find the girl? Yes, sir. She was lying flat of her back with a rope around her neck. There was a piece of cloth tied around her neck, too. The direct examination of Conley was completed in less than two hours. His cross-examination was probably the most remarkable feature of the trial. For three days and a half, Luther Z. Rosser fired questions at the Negro in an attempt to trip him up on some point in his testimony. But never once did the Black lose his head. He was taken over and over his story, and he repeated it without a variation. Traps were laid by the shrewd Rosser, but the Negro avoided them. The examination resolved itself into a physical endurance contest. At one time, Attorney Arnold took the floor to address a question to the witness. The move was taken by Dorsey to mean that the two attorneys for the defense intended to question the Negro in relays and wear him out. He interposed an objection, and Judge Roan ordered that Attorney Rosser would have to continue the questioning. The testimony of Conley was taken down by four stenographers in half-hour relays. As soon as one had completed his take, he would hurry to a typewriter and transcribe his notes. By this means, the defense lawyers were supplied with copies of the official testimony of Conley, two hours after it had been entered into the record. They repeatedly asked him questions put previously, and his answers were the same, almost verbatim. Attorney Rosser asked him about occasions on which he had previously watched while Frank entertained women friends in his office. He went into the minutest details. The Negro never hesitated in answering, although he frequently replied, I disremember. Tell us about the first time you watched. You said it was in July, 1912. Who was there that day? C.B. Dalton and a woman who worked on the fourth floor and another woman named Daisy Hopkins, who once worked at the factory. The Negro replied. About 3 or 3.30 in the afternoon. What were you doing? asked the attorney. I was sweeping when they came in, but Mr. Frank called me to his office and asked if I wanted to make a piece of money, and then he told me to watch the door for him. I went down and watched, and pretty soon that young lady went out, and she came back with a man, Mr. Dalton. Then they went upstairs, and I heard them walk into Mr. Frank's office. They stayed about 10 or 15 minutes, and then the young lady and Mr. Dalton came out, and the young lady says, All right, James. And then I took them back and opened the trap door, and they went down to the ladder to the basement. Who told you to open that door, Jim? Did she tell you? No, sir. Mr. Frank had told me when he was talking with me. The witness declared that he had no idea of the length of time the couple stayed in the basement, but said that he waited near the trap door and opened it for them to come up. In answer to questions, he then declared that Dalton went on out and the girl went upstairs, and, after waiting at the head of the stairs for several minutes, went into the office. A little later, she and Miss Hopkins came down, and it was considerably later that Frank left the office, he said. Mr. Dalton, he said, gave him a quarter, and Mr. Frank gave him another as he was leaving. The witness said that the girls left about 4.30 o'clock. The witness was told by the cross-examiner to narrate the events of the next visit of women to the factory, which Conley said was on a Saturday about two weeks later. At that time, Conley declared that Frank came up to him early in the morning and told him that he wanted to put him wise for the afternoon. Frank returned to the office about 2.15 that afternoon, he said, and shortly after he went into the office, Mr. Holloway left. Sometime later, the Negro declared Miss Daisy Hopkins came in, and he followed her up the steps and saw her go into the office. Frank snapped his fingers at him, he declared, and bowed his head. 
Then he went down and watched at the front door, and Frank gave him 50 cents after the girl had left. Now, tell about the next time, Thanksgiving, Mr. Rosser said to the Negro. No, sir, it was not Thanksgiving, said the Negro. It was before Thanksgiving, early in the winter. When was it? About the middle of August. Oh, yes, said Mr. Rosser. It was pretty cold that day, wasn't it? The Negro saw the trap and neatly dodged it. No, sir, it was not cold. Well, it was winter. It was sorter cold? No, I can't say it was cold, Conley answered. Well, that morning, he continued, Mr. Frank told me he wanted to put me wise again for that afternoon. Oh, yes, interrupted Rosser. He used that same word every time, didn't he? The Negro said that he did that time and the other time, but was not sure he used it after every time he spoke of the matter. What was this woman's hair like? asked Attorney Rosser. After looking around the courtroom, the Negro replied, It was like Mr. Hooper's. You seem to know Hooper well. How is that? Well, he talked to me once or twice. It is gray like Hooper's? If that is gray, it was. What sort of clothes did she wear? She had on a green suit. Now, let's take Daisy Hopkins, said Attorney Rosser. What did she wear? The first time she came, she wore a black skirt and a white shirtwaist. What did she wear the second time? The same thing. Did you ever speak to her around the factory? No, sir, she didn't know me. You've been there two years. And do you mean to tell me that everybody around there don't know Jim Conley? Lots of them don't know me. Who are some of them? I don't know, but there's lots of them. Attorney Rosser then questioned Conley about last Thanksgiving Day, when he said he again acted as lookout for Frank. Conley said that he had waited near the door until the woman came. He said he got to the factory about 8 or 8.30 o'clock and that she entered about half an hour later. Did you know her? No, sir, I never saw her since. I saw her in Mr. Frank's office about three days before that. Was it the same week? I don't know. It was sometime near Thanksgiving, though. What time was that? About eight o'clock in the evening. What were you doing there so late? I was stacking some boxes upstairs. How was she dressed? I think she had on black clothes. I don't remember exactly. How was her face? Oh, she was good-looking. Now, on this Thanksgiving morning, you closed the door after her? Yes, sir. And you say when Mr. Frank stamped his foot, you locked the door after her? Yes, sir. When Mr. Frank stamped, I closed the door. Was there any signal? How many times was he to stamp? Twice. It wasn't three, was it? No, sir. It was twice. And then I was to kick the door of the elevator twice. What did you do after that? I sat on the box. How long? About an hour and a half, it seemed to me. And then she came down? No, Mr. Frank came down. He said, is everything all right? And then he opened the door and looked up and down the street and then called to her, all right. And then she came down and they walked to the door and as they passed me, the woman looked at me and said, is that the nigger? And Mr. Frank said, yes, that is the best nigger I ever saw. Did she say that to you? Queried Attorney Rosser. No, replied the black. She was talking to Mr. Frank.
Conley was questioned about every assertion that he had made in his affidavits to the police. Time and time again, he admitted that he had lied when questioned by the detectives. I told a million lies, I guess, he said. At the end of the first day's grilling, the state was jubilant. Conley was telling the truth at last, they believed, and they were confident that the defense would never break him down. It's a bear fight, and I am betting on our bear, was the comment of Frank A. Hooper. Later, several days after Conley had been grilled, Rosser remarked, That's a smart nigger. He's the smartest one I ever tackled. But he's the greatest liar on earth. The most bitter legal battle of the whole case occurred on the afternoon of Tuesday, August 5th, when the defense attorneys unexpectedly moved that all the testimony of Conley pertaining to watching for Frank on previous days and the statements of the Negro attacking his character be stricken from the record. The motion was made immediately after the midday adjournment. Attorney Arnold arose and asked that the jury be sent out. After the talesman had marched from the room, he announced to the court that he wanted this testimony expunged from the transcript, on the grounds that it was irrelevant, immaterial, incompetent, and inadmissible. We move first, he said, to exclude from the record all the testimony of Conley relative to watching for the defense, and we withdraw our cross-examination on that subject. Second, Mr. Arnold moved that a portion of the Negro's testimony attacking Frank's character, which was brought out through questions propounded by the solicitor, be ruled out. Mr. Arnold concluded the argument by saying, Before anything else is done, we move to exclude this from the record. Judge Roan spoke up. As I understand it, Mr. Arnold, what you want to withdraw is testimony about watching on other occasions. Attorney Hooper took the floor, saying, To allow this bringing out witnesses to sustain Conley, we propose to motion would be to trifle with the court. When they did not object at the time this evidence was introduced, I believe they lost any ground that they had for an objection. If their objection had been entered at the time of the introduction of this testimony, I should say that the objection was well taken, but I do not think that they have a right after letting it all go into the records without protest now to move for its total exclusion. Frank dropped his head and his mother put her arm around his neck and patted him on the shoulder and whispered in his ear. He smiled faintly and looked around. Solicitor Dorsey addressed the court. I submit, Your Honor, said he. As an original proposition, this evidence is admissible. They have waited too late to enter their objection. Mr. Rosser interrupted. We move to rule it out because it is immaterial, said he, addressing both the court and the solicitor. If you've got any authority to back up your objection, retorted the solicitor, trot it out. I never trot out anything in court, replied Mr. Rosser. I've got too much respect for the court. Well, gallop it out, lope it out, said the solicitor. It doesn't make any difference, just so you produce it. You wouldn't understand it if we did, snapped Mr. Rosser. Solicitor Dorsey proceeded, ignoring the last remark. Your Honor, just as a matter of fairness, I submit that it is not right to let this gentleman give this witness a most severe grueling for two days, go into his testimony by cross-examination, and then come along and ask that certain portions of it be ruled out. They would stop us now from corroborating the testimony of this witness as to Frank's conduct. To grant their motion would be to stop us from introducing our corroborative evidence. The solicitor announced that he had other witnesses waiting to corroborate Conley. 
Is it fair, Your Honor, after one, two, three, four able counsel have sat here and let this evidence get into the record, after they have cross-examined the witness for two days and then wake up to the conclusion that it should be expunged from the record? Is that a fair proposition? The state's case will have been done great damage, continued the solicitor, if now, after the defense has derived all the benefit it possibly can expect from cross-examination, these facts are cut out and we are not given an opportunity to put witnesses on the stand to show that this man, Jim Conley, has spoken the truth. Now, the able counsel sees the terrific force of these transactions, and they would stop us from corroborating them. I appeal to you, in the name of fairness and justice, to let counsel now see that objections, if they are to be entertained, must be timely. Why, Your Honor, they have gone into even the workings of the National Pencil Factory and showed this man Conley's relations with a half a dozen different men, and they have done so very properly, for it shows his connection with this defendant and is a part of the history of the crime. I will tell Your Honor right now that we have witnesses to sustain this man. Any piece of evidence, any transaction, anything of his past conduct, to show his intent and purpose when he got this girl up there is admissible. And it is largely by this that we are showing what this man did to poor little Mary Fagan. Anything to show his motive must be admissible. As to the distinct relevancy of this testimony, I cite as an instance the testimony of Dr. Hurt. This testimony, which they would rule out, goes right to the point and it will be corroborated. It goes largely to show who killed the girl. I beg of you to think twice before you rule out these powerful circumstances. Solicitor Dorsey challenged the defense to produce any decision written within the past five years contrary to this principle. The courts are slow, said Mr. Dorsey, too slow to progress, but this one rule the courts have now taken up. The importance of this testimony will be more manifest before we get further in this case. During Solicitor Dorsey's arraignment of Frank, Mrs. Frank, wife of the accused, arose from her seat and left the room. She went into an answer room and remained several minutes. When she returned to the court, there were fresh tears in her eyes. She resumed her seat at her husband's side. There's no use making stump speeches here, said Mr. Arnold. There's no use waxing so eloquent. I could do it, I guess, but I don't want to make my jury argument while it's so hot unless I have to. Mr. Arnold turned the objectionable evidence, quote, miserable, rotten stuff, end quote and went on to say that the defendant suffered outrageously by its admission into the records. The state admits that it is illegal evidence, said he. The only ground that they want it retained on is that we didn't make timely objection. In a criminal case, you never can try a man for but one crime. That's the old Anglo-Saxon way. In France and in Italy and in Germany, when a prisoner comes into court, he comes prepared to answer for his whole life. But it's not that way here. We only try a man for one crime. What is this proposition? I sympathize with the little girl's parents as much as anybody, but I say it is just as much murder to attempt to convict this defendant by the introduction of illegal and irrelevant evidence. This miserable wretch on the stand, pointing to Conley, has told a glib parrot-like tale. He was schooled in it for two months, and I feel sorry for anybody that will believe him he has introduced another capital crime into this case. Not that I believe a white man would believe a word he said, but his testimony has brought it in. A case of murder is a distinctly marked case, and as I understand it, the state does not contend even that this is a premeditated case. The state has put this man on the stand, 
and they want to bolster up his outrageous tale with a lot of irrelevant matter. Attorney Arnold attacked the Supreme Court decision cited by Solicitor Dorsey, contending that the decision was written in a case involving illegal sale of cocaine and not in a murder case. Murder, he said, is an entirely different matter and is more serious than the selling of cocaine. If this evidence is admitted, we would have to stop investigating the murder and take up the investigation of two other cases, and the cases he mentioned are not parallel with this. With this evidence before the jury, there is a likelihood of that body convicting this defendant on general principles. I am coming under a general rule when I say this ought to be ruled out. Your Honor, how much confusion would be in the jury's mind? How much the issue would be clouded? Continued Mr. Arnold. How unfair to this defendant in a day or two without notice and require him to answer such charges as these. It would necessitate our going back over all of these days this villain has mentioned. We would have to call in every employee of the factory and goodness knows how many other witnesses. If they can put such evidence as this in, we certainly can rebut it. This is a legal testimony, and they have done us an incalculable injury to let this suspicion get into the minds of the jury. Judge Roan interrupted Mr. Arnold. Everything relating to the watching on the particular day, April 26th, is relevant. Everything relating to that particular transaction is a part of this case, said Mr. Arnold. We are not even objecting to what this witness says happened at the factory or what was told him on the Friday before. Judge Roan announced his ruling as follows. There is no doubt in my mind that this evidence was inadmissible as an original proposition and I will rule out all except as to the watching on that particular day. Attorney Hooper requested the judge to postpone his decision until Wednesday in order to give the state time to look up and submit decisions bearing on the point and issue. The court refused to do this. Judge Roan added, however, that he holds himself in readiness to reverse himself if he finds that he has ruled wrong. I have no pride about that matter, said the judge. I wouldn't hesitate to reverse myself. I wouldn't hesitate to reverse myself if I found I was wrong. The jury was then brought back into court and Attorney Rosser resumed his cross-examination of Conley. Judge Roan added, however, that he held himself in readiness to reverse himself in the event that a study of authorities on the subtle point proved his ruling wrong. The jury was then returned to the courtroom and the cross-questioning of Conley was resumed by Attorney Rosser. <laughs> 